Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for all things human factors, psychology, and design. All right. Hey, everyone. It's episode 194. Today is February 18th, 2021. This is Human Factors Cast. I am your host, Nick Rome, and I'm joined today by Mr. Blake Arnsdorf. Yes, another Thursday, another podcast night with Mr. Nick Rome. Another Thursday, another podcast night with Mr. Arnstorf. From my perspective, uh, I we, had to—I almost like did not know it was Thursday. That's where I'm at this week. I know it's been a weird week, right? Because Monday was a holiday here in the states, and yep. uh, yeah, a lot's been going on. Um, but we got a a somewhat topical and interesting news story this week. Uh, we have a an article from TechCrunch: Five ways Robinhood ru- Robinhood's rushed UX changes exacerbated the GameStop crisis. Um, especially topical today because of the hearings. We'll get into all that. Uh, but just to get into some quick programming notes, uh, we are back on YouTube again. So if you are thinking about watching us, uh, you can certainly do that. I don't know why you'd want to watch our faces, but you can certainly have it up in another <laughs> another tab and listen to us live. We're usually uh, live recording the episode around 5 p.m. Pacific time every Thursday evening. However, uh, we do like a little pre-show for, for everyone who joins us a little bit early. Uh, we're usually on by 4.30, 4.45, um, getting the show notes together and, and just just wrapping a little bit before the show. Uh, so, and, and we do a little bit of post show too. Um, so if you want to join us over on YouTube for now, that's where we're at. We might expand to more platforms in the future, but again, we're trying this whole, uh, interactive audience thing going on. We got a live chat up. So if you have any questions or comments as we're going through all this, uh, you might hear some of those on the show. We're trying to make this a little bit more interactive for all you all. So, uh, this is, this is a great time to be a podcaster. I think Blake, (laughs) Absolutely. If you just want to come say hi, like one of our Patreons did today, please feel free to do that too. Please, uh, we do appreciate that. just hanging out with anybody and just having a good time. Yes, it's a good time. But Blake, I got to know what's going on in your world, man. Man, so we chatted about this a little bit earlier, but something that's kind of been you know churning around a lot for some of the people that I work with um, for my design lab mentoring. Uh, so for those who don't know or knew the show, I do a lot of UX design and research. And I also like to be an educator. Like that's my kind of part-time job in the evenings. And I've noticed a lot of students have asked me recently about imposter syndrome and like, how do you know that you can feel like that you're actually a professional and you're no longer like aspiring to be somebody or aspiring to be a designer, aspiring to be a human factors person. And so a lot of people asked me like how I got over you know, having imposter syndrome or feeling like I didn't know what I was doing. Do you I think to it? a lot of people, I have it now. <laughs> I have it all the time. And I think that was the surprising part talking to a couple students this week was that, that I, I don't know, I'm of the opinion that for me, that's just never going to go away. But the thing that I can look back on and understand that I am to some degree capable of doing the jobs that I do is I have you know, I've developed software. I've helped designs be pushed forward. I've done a lot of usability testing and studies in the past. So there's a lot of like a long line of work that indicates that I know to some degree how to do human factors work or how to be a designer or how to do some development, believe it or not. And the, But the imposter syndrome thing does not really go away for me. 
I think the only thing that changes is it's just like it's a different kind of perspective because I think being able to do something like this, like the podcast where we talk about human factors or user experience all the time and just getting more comfortable talking about the subjects, I think that gives people the impression that I'm super confident in everything that I do when it comes to, you know, user experience or whatever. So it it was one of those things I wanted to also throw to you in case anybody's listening that's like starting their first job or even has been in like a mid-tier position and still feel like they don't really know what they're doing. I mean, do you experience imposter syndrome this late in the game? Because you've you've been a human factors person for a long time. You know, I, I, I will say, um, I still get it every now and then, and I've, I've really actually, it's, it's great that you kind of are, are reflecting on this, uh, with your students is because I've actually thought about this recently myself. I don't feel it anymore. And, um, I think it's largely due to the team that I work with. Uh, I'm the only one on my team that does human factor stuff. And I think, um, my team understands the importance of what I do. I don't have to spend a lot of time educating them. They kind of just trust me. And they, uh, that trust goes a long way um, for giving me confidence in my role. However, I can see very much where if you're working in an, in an environment where... Uh, now, to be clear, that doesn't mean that they don't challenge me on some of these outcomes. They might, you know, request a reason why I suggest something a certain way. But there is a higher level of intrinsic trust within the group that I'm working in now than in groups that I've worked with in the past. And I will say that's gone a long way for my confidence. And and like I said, it's not necessarily a, a matter of um, having a team that just trusts you blindly go on your way. I don't think that's healthy. I think that discourse is very healthy, um, especially for the design of a product. Um, however, I will say, you know, the more your team trusts you to do something or doesn't question kind of the, uh, the methods and motives that you took to get to that conclusion, I think sure. that goes a long way for, for me to have that confidence to where I don't have imposter syndrome and, 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 and really like, a lot of people do experience imposter syndrome. I, I highly suspect that if I get involved with another team somewhere in the future, um, you know, like it might come back. So it's just a matter of where you're at, what to, what team you're working with, who you're working with. Um, that's a great question, though, Blake. And and honestly, man, like you're, you're starting the it came from at the top here. <laughs> I know it's like. my favorite part of the show, and I just wanted to kick it off that way. Right. Oh, man. Oh, man. But how's everything been going in your world, man? What's new? It's good. It's good. It was a little bit of a weird week. Uh, the holiday, like I said, kicked us off. So it's it's felt like this isn't really Thursday. A lot of work. Anyway, um, I did have a chance to kind of slow down and watch a Nintendo Direct earlier this week. And, you know, this is the first time. Have you ever watched one of these? It's, no, what is it? So a Nintendo Direct is, uh, it, it's like, um, well, in this case, it was a 50-minute video where they showcase new games coming to the Nintendo Switch. They have people come on, and they describe the games that they're showing. Now, uh, this this really got me thinking um, just about the, the way in which they communicate information. It's such a um, nicely produced uh, way to release information that feels like it res- both respects um, you know people who are watching its time, and uh, Nintendo is just so fabulous at keeping secrets under wraps that like 
you know, any anything that comes out of these announcements is is fun to look at. You know, there were there were games I obviously didn't care for in it, and there are games that other people probably didn't care for in it. But I I think that overlap is small, and the time that they spend on each one of these games is just enough to where you're like. I can sit through this. I can wait till the next one. And it's not disrespectful of my time. I'll just see what this is about, you know, and, oh, this is a game that I don't really care for, but I'll wait a few seconds and it'll be on to the next one. And, oh, hey, there's a Star Wars one. That's great. And it was only a couple seconds long. And I was like, oh, wait, no, no, no. I want more details about that. But I, I just, I, it really got me appreciating, um, uh, you know, from, from the human factors perspective, even just how tightly their uh, production is on those Nintendo directs um, and feel like more companies should follow that model of not of like really making sure that their script is tight, that the things that they're showing are quick enough to generate interest, but not long enough to discourage somebody from like, you know, pulling out their phone and checking, you know, whatever it is, uh, Twitter or something in between things right and i still did that i looked at what was trending during it but i just really appreciated it and and think that more companies should follow that that uh that kind of style yeah i mean that's definitely a way to keep people engaged and for some for a company like nintendo and i would imagine the same could be said for like xbox or i guess microsoft or playstation or sony is like being able to keep everybody in the crowd's attention for a long period of time is probably really hard to do for kind of what you mentioned at the top, right? There were some games you were stoked on, some you weren't, and then the the vice versa for each person in the audience. Right. But it seems like Nintendo's really got it down if they're able to like combine stuff in pretty short segments but still get you really stoked for the stuff that you are seeing that you like. Uh, so that's a really smart move. That's cool. That's pretty insightful of you too. You know, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and plug one more thing about it that I think is so effective. Um, in a lot of cases, you'll get like these seasonal events like E3 or the Game Awards, where it's highly anticipated and everyone knows it's coming and everyone kind of makes way in their schedule for it. And what Nintendo does is, um, they will like announce it 24 hours in advance and. Wow, that short notice? Yeah. And so, like, they're working on it, and they're not going to release it until it's ready. And it's just, a lot of times, they come out of the blue. And so, you're as as a consumer, you're sitting there going, oh, well, this is a pleasant surprise. You know, I wasn't expecting anything. But then, then you know, a, a day ago, you told me that this was coming out, and great. I don't have any expectations about what to, what you know, what we could see here. And it's the the time difference between their announcing it and and it show it right there is some speculation right we thought we might see breath of the wild 2 we thought we might see a new mario but because that time difference between the things was so short it's not like the disappointment was immeasurable once you know that that direct came out it was like oh okay and Sorry, one more thing. They do a very good job of managing expectations, right? So the creator of Zelda or the the uh, director of Zelda came up and everyone was like, oh, Breath of the Wild 2. We're going to hear about that. And he's like, I know a lot of people are expecting Breath of the Wild 2 news since I'm up here. You're going to have to wait a little while longer, right? They're very transparent about it. They're like, we don't have anything to show you today. Stay tuned. We're going to show a little bit more later this year. And that transparency is like really appreciated from a consumer perspective. Like I, I don't know, it's just a really cool way to to disseminate information. I really appreciate it. 
That's so nuts because basically what you're describing to me sounds like like the presentation was obviously well thought out and designed, right? In terms of information presentation, all the stuff they do. But it seems like the the larger game they're playing too is very well thought out and like thinking about there's a lot of a lot of things on the internet right now and a lot of people are, you know, having their attention spread everywhere. How do we engage people the most? And it right. seems like by, you know, doing time span short from the presentation also being transparent up front. Cause like if you were a Zelda fan, you could just leave the presentation if you really weren't there for anything else. So that's really awesome to hear that there's like not only like a giant company out there that makes really cool products, like respecting people's time, but they're also being really thoughtful about how they're putting events together. Basically. Yeah. I just thought it was a great like use of time. Anyway, I, I, I'm going on and on and on. Uh, I think we should get into the news. That's right, this part of the show is all about Human Factors news. This is where we talk about everything related to the field of Human Factors. This could be anything from medical, uh, privacy, security, whatever. Uh, as long as it relates to the field of Human Factors, it is fair game for us to talk about. Uh, Blake, what do we have this week? This week, it is all about fintech. So, the GameStop debacle has been hailed by many as the first of its kind for from a digital activism with the crowd coming together to stick it to Wall Street and specifically hedge funds that are in business of sh- in the business of short selling, especially since there has been some significant reputational damage at stake if you're uh, if you're Robinhood, and that's exactly the position that the trading platform has found itself in in the last week. So, despite promising to make financial finance accessible to all, the company had to limit trading on GameStop, AMC, and other meme stocks, leaving users upset that the fintech company wasn't living up to its name. The specific reasons may have been short-term and technical, but the choice was viewed with suspicion by much of the Robinhood users, and not not least because Robinhood has a large hedge fund as a main customer. So this saw Robinhood app receive hundreds of thousands of one-star ratings across app stores, uh, which Apple and Google, thankfully from Robinhood's perspective, helped them remove. Uh, But what role in all this did the design and the kind of user experience choices that Robinhood made attribute to the backlash? So the main things that kind of we're going to chat through from this story, right, are kind of like five main topics that were put together by some some TechCrunch writers about some of the UX problems here. Um, so just at a high level, really what we're looking at is GameStop being removed from search results from Robinhood, people being blocked from buying those shares, uh, fractional shares being unavailable, uh, creating sell orders on your own behalf, and then lastly, failing to actually allow people to leave through not getting them statements in time. So there's kind of a lot to unpack here, Nick, but do you want to break down for those that maybe aren't as in tune, like what's really going on here? Yeah, uh, that's that's a loaded question. So um, I kind of described it in our pre-show, um, but I think I think this article does a great job of kind of setting the stage here. Long story short, there are institutions that make money off of a stock price going down. Um, there are retail investors, people like you and I, who have apps like Robinhood or Fidelity or um, whatever it is, right, that invest with our own money. And um, there was kind of a rally behind this GameStop stock. And um, just for everyone listening to, this is really topical because just today, 
Um, the House led the the House Financial Committee led a uh, investigation into everything that happened, and there's some key quotes that. Um, you know, will come out of that. And, and so it's very timely that our patrons actually chose this story for this week. Uh, so it's, it's great. It all kind of fits together. But um, so anyway, there are people that make money off uh, their institutions that make money off of stock price going down. There are people who rally behind GameStop's price. And because uh, these two competing um, ideals about where the stock price should be uh, force the price up. And as the price reached to something that is improbable for a, a a a true evaluation of the company um the, the price hit i think 485 at some point uh which for for gamestop was uh and still is probably improbable at this time um the uh so what happened during all this at, at the peak uh robin hood implements um some of these ux changes uh, during a time where they also limited uh, buying GameStop shares. And that's one of the points that they actually make here, so we'll get into that in a minute. But um, these changes uh, caused the price, or, or it's speculated, I guess, that, that these changes and changes made across other platforms that are similar, um, a lot of these platforms adopted these changes where you couldn't buy the stock. Um, so because of this, it shot the price back down and so a lot of people bought in at like 300 400 and now they're left with a share that's worth at the time of this recording uh 50 i think i don't know um wow. so yeah, it's a lot of money and people throwing their life savings into it anyway so all of this action on on uh the broker's part um, um an application like robin hood has caused uh United States government to get involved and do a hearing on this and, and see what's going on. Um, so, but, but what we're here to talk about today, um, politics aside and uh, opinions on the app aside, we're here to break this down from a human factors perspective, what's actually going on with the Robin Hood app and what happened during the height of, of this fiasco. Um, and also we're going to pull in some key um, quotes and, and, uh, conversations from today's hearing that kind of fit into all this so um i think you did a great job blake uh we we have the five things here so we can kind of break these down one by one um and we can talk about them individually and, and we'll start there so right so the first thing that happened uh was um when they blocked people from buying these shares they they <laughs> were completely unable to even look for the ticker, which is GME, um, as the three symbol uh, ticker symbol that that people would search for in the app for GameStop, they completely remove this from search. So first off, people can't even find the thing unless you have shares in it, right? I had shares in it at the time. I was able to click on it and see what was going on, but I still couldn't go in and search. Um, so um, you know that's incredibly dangerous from from that perspective. If only. Uh, because it, you're you're blocking users from being able to see information that's readily available on plenty of other platforms. Um, so it really seems like a strange choice to just remove it completely from search. 
because that just that just leads to you feeling like something strange is going on because it's it's it, i mean especially at the time right like this was all over the news it was definitely all over the internet and so yanking something out from like a possibility to even search for it i just don't know if that's the best move on their part yeah i mean it would have been I, I don't know from my perspective you want to you probably would have wanted people to still be accessing it and seeing it but being unable to purchase it and providing rationale that way would make more sense to me versus just like nope it doesn't exist it's not here anymore except for if you have shares then you can go look at your shares or whatever you could see yeah and and a lot of this uh a lot of the issues i think come down to transparency about what's happening um and in this case right if they said if if you searched in gamestop or gme and they came back with hey, we're not letting users see GME right now just because of everything that's going on or it's under investigation. It wasn't at the time, but if they gave some good reason to limit it from the search results, it would have been better than what they did. They should have left it in. And we're going to talk about everything kind of at the frame of reference of limiting buying GameStop shares because there was a lot of stuff that went on um, external to that, but that was kind of the big one, right? And that's um, kind of what's next, right? And, and before we move on from removing this thing from the search results, um, you know, the, the whole issue here is that it's not definitive. It's not clear. Uh, there's kind of that absence of information, um, which is not great from, from a human factors perspective. You know, we, we want to know system status. What's going on with GME, the system, Right. Absolutely, yeah. And this, I, I don't know, to kind of looking at it from the outside in, from the maybe the technical quick fix perspective, maybe that was just the easiest way to stop the page from appearing and people being able to access it. And so maybe that's why you just saw it be removed from search history and that was the easiest fix for them in a in like a very fast turnaround. Because although like you're you're definitely right, we you've broken a bunch of maxims of human factors in UX, the biggest one of like letting you know what information is available and being able to access it if you know it's supposed to be there. Um, And I I do wonder if that was just the fastest way to get something implemented under the hood. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about them actually removing the capability to purchase shares. Um, the, the whole thing with Robinhood is that you are allowed to purchase not only shares, but fractional shares. So you're able to buy a portion of one share that you share with somebody else or Robinhood. It's a little unclear. Um, but what happened during all this, during the peak, like I said, they shut off buying entirely. Uh, and they cited this due to volatility. And... Um, kind of with the user's best interest in mind saying, hey, you don't want to do this because it's being really volatile right now. And, you know, like that to me, that doesn't scream free market. That screams um, like someone's trying to control what you can and can't do. Now, if they said simply something, you know, if they were truthful about it and said, you know, hey, we don't have the money uh, to front your shares right now. Um, so... We can't let you buy it. You know, that's that's one thing. Um, so we're still trying to figure out what's exactly going on here. Um, but the idea is that they would at least provide some additional information. That would be anything better than what they did. Uh, there's just a big thing that said you can't do it because of volatility. And they were not very specific. Um, and so... 
Yeah, I mean, what does that even mean in this context? Right. I, I know that that's like a that is a term that you see used in kind of like the stock market and things like that. But at the same time, like when you're talking about disabling people from buying something when it's just like it's kind of a crazy phenomenon all of a sudden, it it's tough because I I imagine from Robinhood's perspective, it was like get stuff implemented now and deploy it across his application. But at the same time, I I think they may have made maybe it's erroneous maybe i just don't know what i'm talking about but i think they may have uh put users off or lost a lot of user trust by some of these quick actions without a lot of explanation because i mean that's what's in common between one and two is you didn't you didn't amplify what was being done they certainly did blake and that's point five we'll get to that in a minute um with how many users they lost because of this but um you know when when you went to go buy a share the thing was like grayed out so you wouldn't even be able to see it um yeah and so uh you know when you clicked on it they they would say fractional shares aren't available um but they didn't provide a reason in the app and so you know one solution to that would have been actually providing a link so that way they can click on it um i'm gonna get into this next point here uh which is uh creating sell orders on your behalf um so uh, or I guess the we talked about blocking people from buying shares. We talked about the fractional shares bit. Um, we, I guess we kind of talked about two and three together, but four here is creating sell orders on your behalf. Now, what happens uh, when you want to sell a security? Um, they basically, um, if you were trading on margin, which means you're borrowing Robinhood's money uh, to trade, um, they automatically sold your shares for you and that's part of the agreement is that if you are on margin um they might do that for liquidity um and so you know i i don't think this was like very clear to a lot of people right you know even even since this article was published um uh a robin hood spokesperson says it was false so well in in full transparency too i don't know what you're talking about just the language there alone (laughs) i would have to i would have to go look it up i've made assumptions to understand what it is based off of that and the need for liquid capital for these guys but that's that seems pretty nuts and i i would imagine you you would know better because you're much more versed in this but we're uh is robin hood up front about that concept like the fact that they can do this and they will do it if it's necessary in the terms of service agreement you know that big Yikes. long document that you never that's read? what i was wondering yeah, yeah this giant just uh, terms and services you know legalese document for you to read through okay yeah you uh, know it also might so it does be, exist it also might be in the settings when you turn on margin sharing i'm not quite sure on that one the idea Got here it. is that um you know even we, we can talk about whether or not this was truthful i can talk about my experience is that i was setting limits on my orders Uh, that were outside the range that they thought was acceptable. And so when I did that, they automatically canceled those limit orders without my permission. Um, And so even doing something like that, canceling sell orders um, on your behalf is, is not, you know, good UX, right? They should have, um, you know, stopping them from doing something like that to begin with is one thing, but then actually stepping in and taking control is a complete other perspective right yeah and maybe this is synonymous but is that 
I mean, bad UX, sure, bad design, whatever you want to call it. But isn't that kind of unethical in some way? Oh, I don't know, Blake. I don't. I don't. <laughs> I'm not here to talk about that, ethics. I, that that <laughs> totally feels unethical to me. I mean, that's that's beyond just the design. That's like basically determining what it, they're going to do with your money as they need it. Yeah. So unethical. Well, uh, my personal opinion, it's unethical in one way, but not another. So if if the price is going down and you've set a share a, a sell limit on a share that's coming down and it hits that limit and it they've canceled it before it hits that so then it keeps going down and down and down and your your limit sell is is gone right that means the price is then lower than what you wanted to sell it at so that's one way and yes i think gotcha. that's an unethical however if you it, like let's say the price was at 500 and you set the sell price for 750 and they say, hey, that's a little high. We don't think it'll make it. We're going to cancel that. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, well, then we're like $200 out. We're like $300 out from that point. And it's like, okay, well, it's probably not going to rise like that. It might because it's GameStop and this whole thing. But, yeah. um, you know, at that point, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily unethical. I think they just need to be a little bit more transparent about it. Um, but, I mean, have I explained what's going on with these, like, sell order i think you've you've kind of mentioned that you're picking up on some of these cues is there any way i can be more clear about it no no, no i think you're clear because it it does like it the article also calls out the fact that this is in the terms and services agreement that they can create these on your behalf if they have to um and you yeah you broke it down perfect i think it makes a lot of sense again it's it, it's it's funny uh these items are all very different but it leads kind of down the same you know towards the same ideas in terms of like the rules you're breaking, if you will, or heuristics you're violating. And it's, it's a lot of just, you're not being very transparent with information or rationale for why you can or can do something. So it's, it's kind of interesting that that all culminates here. Yeah. And what did all culminate in people leaving the platform? <laughs> yep. This, so this last one, I don't understand what it's really getting at. I understand they're leaving the platform, but it, it does make this kind of failing to get statements is the way that they framed the entire thing. Yeah. Was this like stopping people from leaving for some reason? Let's, let's talk about what happens when you want to leave Robinhood. So there you have a couple options. You could sell all your shares, uh, liquidate all your assets, turn it into money, withdraw that money into your own bank account. Then you take that money, put it into a new broker, and buy those same shares back with your new broker. That's one way of doing it. With that comes some tax implications because you have cashed out on some securities. You then have potentially capital gains taxes that you have to worry about. Um, you also don't hold those positions anymore. So you're locked into the price. Um, and however long it takes you to transfer all those assets into your new broker. There's another way of doing it where you give the account information to your new broker and they transfer all your positions. So now there's no tax implications because you haven't sold any securities. You um, maintain all of your assets in, uh, you know, th there's a transfer that occurs between broker to broker. It's just, it's transferring assets instead of money. And those assets are worth something on the market. And so, what happened here is that um, basically the download statement function was broken for people um, as they were trying to um, find the statement so that way they could give it to their new broker. And um, 
the only error people got was there's an unexpected server error. Please try again later. Um, oh no! No they alternative for them to uh, no, no alternative for them to um, get. You know, they they couldn't contact anybody. They couldn't email anybody or anything like that. So, um, you know, this potentially wasn't as urgent or vital as some of these other things going on, but it still uh, definitely was like a, hey, you're here on our terms and you can't leave. Um, or at least we're going to yeah. make it very hard for you to leave. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's what's going on there. Yeah, that's so. This is one that you just hope that they're, and it, I guess in the article it doesn't really, it doesn't say whether Robinhood's taking responsibility for them doing this or if they're just like blaming it on server error. Which you know, I'm sure the the sheer scale they were not prepared for it. It's obvious, like yeah. from the whole not having enough liquid funds and all this other stuff. And I can only imagine how many people did the Robinhood Gold thing. It was probably a nightmare from that perspective, but. It, this is pretty gnarly because it's it's like if you're stopping people from leaving in this kind of way, that's a super dark pattern. But if you're not even providing again like an alternative or any of that stuff, like that that just gets really nasty. And I I could imagine that the culmination of all of these things like it probably lost them a giant chunk of their user base. I think the the or and you correct me if I'm kind of like really out of line here i think part of the hard hardness of this whole thing is they re- they made the finance a- financial aspect of doing this very very easy and i think they did have a very good user experience and good design uh but this this just hit them so hard they didn't even know what to do and so they made all these for from my perspective what seems like really rash quick decisions Poor choices. to save themselves <laughs> And it caught. I think it's good. I think it's cost them dearly. Um, and in a lot of ways, the the they were there was no way they were going to be able to be in control of somebody kind of pulling off this short selling for GameStop and it going the route that it did. Uh, but it it sucks. This is it's a it's like a great company that I've been really excited about for a long time. Um, and it it just feels like they had to make a bunch of really bad decisions quickly and it just cost them a lot but i don't yeah. know i'm sure they'll bounce back in some way or another maybe we'll see um th- you know th- they there's also a thing earlier last year during the whole covid thing when there was a lot of transactions going on then they kind of froze everything so it's a repeat occurrence and um you know th- I, at least from my perspective they haven't been uh making a whole lot of great business decisions. And um, this was kind of what I was alluding to last week when I was talking about ethics versus usability of a platform. Robinhood's very usable. Yeah. Uh, but, very, you know, very. I the ethics going on here <coughs> and the fact that they employed some really bad um, user experience and human factors principles were violated uh, it made me really just kind of look elsewhere <laughs> for a broker. Um so I, with all this, right, they, they made all these decisions and this kind of how it all contributed to the GameStop um, bubble, uh, whatever you want to call it, right? Today, um, as we're recording Tuesday, or Thursday, the 18th of uh, February, 2021, uh, there was a hearing in the House um, of Representatives today uh, with um, the CEO of Robin Hood. There was also... The CEO of Citadel, which is a um, 
basically all the big players. Uh, they had the CEO of Citadel, Melvin Capital, which was the hedge fund. Uh, and then they also had uh, Roaring Kitty, which um, I forget. Keith Gill is is the guy who initially posted on Reddit, you know, way long ago, 2019, saying, hey, GameStop's going to be huge. Um, and so they had the Reddit CEO on there, too. So there's a, there's a lot of big players in the room. Um, and uh, and so what happened was uh, there was a lot of, of kind of uh, questioning of Robin Hood during all this. Uh, a lot of questions for the CEO. Uh, I would say like 90% of all the questions were for the CEO and maybe 10% was split among the other ones. Um, and that's a, that's, that's a lot of questions for somebody to answer. And so, of course, during yeah. all this, um, Congress people brought up uh, some really great points. And I have some quotes here I'd like to talk about. Um, and this is all uh, like leaving politics out of it. This is going to be quotes about the human factors of Robin Hood and the things that they're doing on the app um, that are uh, potentially misleading customers or uh, manipulating customers. And so what's going on here is that there's um, so uh, let's see here. I'm just going to read a couple quotes here. Robin Hood seems to have perfected the gamification of trading providing the user with the perception that investing through Robinhood app offers recreational gain with no downside risk. Um, and so, you know, uh, that's a mistake. <laughs> uh, that's, that's a pretty damning statement there, right? Like, yeah, that's a big one. And, and I will say like, there's a lot of really friendly language in there that encourages you to invest. Um, and it is a risky thing to invest your money into securities unless you have done your due diligence and you have researched the company and done all that, right? And so a lot of these um, Congress people were bringing up quotes about education and how how you can better educate um, the retail investor if their goal truly is to democratize the free market and, and bring uh, investing to the masses. How can you help inform them of their decision and make a better informed decision? You know, that that whole discussion is a little bit more loaded. I don't care to get into it. Um, I think every one of us should do our due diligence with the companies that we choose to invest in and understand what's going on. Yeah, that's a big part that I think a lot of times get and especially in a case like this where it's the platform's fault. Like, I get it. I understand dark patterns in design and I know that I know of a specific platform out there that I think does a really good job educating you about the risk and to do your own work. But I think something that should be, you know, pretty obvious is you have to do the work to understand yeah. what's going on with these securities, things you're buying into, the volatility of the market that can happen, like what short selling is, all that stuff. So I don't know. That's not to me, that's not all on Robin Hood. No, that's it's on, not like people not doing their own research. Yeah, and so, but I mean, there are things that are uh, Robin Hood's fault, right? So, like, let's let's continue that line of thought, right? There's there's the um, perception of investing through recreational gain, no downside risk. Uh, so when um, Vlad is his name, Vlad Tenev is the CEO of of Robin Hood, and basically, as he was repeatedly under fire about these things, he described the mechanics of the company's platform and defended his actions uh, as being in the best interest of consumers, even as lawmakers accused it of gamification of stock trading. Um, 
I'm going to read almost this direct quote here. When asked whether the app, which shows digital confetti to celebrate purchases and forced interested users to tap the screen 1,000 times in order to maintain their position on a sign-up wait list, uh, has uh, any safeguards to prevent customers from acting on social media on information rather than fundamentals? Tenev said the site recently redesigned its customer education portal. So there's a lot going on here, right? So so <laughs> they're having them interact with something 1,000 times. They're tapping their phone 1,000 times um, to maintain a position on a sign-up wait list. Uh, that's insane to me. Uh, and then you also have the digital confetti, which is rewarding you for trading or investing. Um, and so it's rewarding you for engaging in this potentially risky behavior it doesn't take, you know, it's like in the Robinhood app itself, you put in how much you want to buy of a company um, and you swipe up and that's it. That's the interaction. There's no checking a box that says, I understand the risks associated with and should there be? Yep. I don't know. That's another conversation. But, um, you know, it could be in the terms of service or, you know, have them. Probably is. It probably yeah. is. I mean, it has to be. Have them onboarding. How how. You know, how much experience have you had with investing? Oh, none. Well, here we're going to walk you through some things. So investing involves risk, and that's what you start with, right? And I'm, I'm sure they do something to this, but there could be They do. They have some onboarding like that because I had to go through it when I was using the application and had to go through it again when I was going through the gold application process too. So they do have onboarding about it, but it's like it's it's not going to educate you fully by any means. It, but And also too, I find it odd that, I don't know. This always happens. So th there's definitely some some things that are being played on here for sure. There's massive gamification. There's definitely some playing on your kind of like dopamine and visual interest systems, right? But at the same time, like there there is onboarding about some of this stuff. They do ask you about how you plan to use the application. The way it's worded, it's definitely for selfish means. They want to yeah. know, are you going to give them capital that they can sit on and use, or are you going to liquidate really quickly? Yeah. Um, so there, there are some aspects of it they do to try to educate or at least mitigate some of this, but they, they're definitely using you know people psychology to their advantage in their design. Yeah. That's, that's quite obvious. It, it, there, there's a uh, committee memorandum um, that also notes some interesting things. I'm going to read this quote. It's long. But I think it's important, and a lot of it talks about, um, you know, from that gamification perspective. So it says, gamification involves tactics used to engage customers to transact, such as increasing use of notifications, prizes, and other psychological tools and design elements to increase rapid trading, short-termism, instead of uh, and short-termism instead of a more cautious approach. Robinhood, in particular, has been accused of using gamification to increase usage of its app possibly to the financial detriment of its clients. Examples include designs to appeal to younger users, including digital confetti to celebrate transactions, colorful illustrations, and its allowance for users to tap up to 1,000 times daily to improve their waitlist position for Robinhood's cash management feature. This has led to criticism that gaming uh, that gamified online trading platforms such as Robinhood encourage behavior similar to a gambling addiction. Definitely not wrong. <laughs> I, th I think that's pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it it's a little bit more damning when you you think about it. There's one more quote I want to read that I pulled out here. Regulators have expressed concern 
about Robinhood's investment platform. On December 16th, 2020, Massachusetts regulators uh, filed a complaint against Robinhood for its, quote, aggressive tactics to attract inexperienced investors, its use of gamification strategies to manipulate customers, and its failure to prevent frequent outages and disruptions on its trading platform. There's a lot going on here, Blake. I just... It's- yeah. So the part that sucks to me, like, you you got to hand it to them. They've obviously done really good at marketing. The design works. It's usable. It's enjoyable to use. Like, something about user experience that I don't necessarily love is that people, like, have delighted experiences. Well, like, using using Robinhood was yeah for sure and I think there's there are definitely elements of it where they're playing on your psychology and playing on your lack of knowledge but there's a lot of platforms and software that does that but what I think bothers me the most is they got people stoked on the platform but then weren't super reliable about the features they were providing or the service they were providing yeah um I that's that's pretty that's pretty gnarly and I I can see where like the Massachusetts whatever it is regulators would have been filing something against them uh, i think it's less on the gamification side and more on the fact that they're fa- they're like failing to provide the actual service that they've promised right well uh, let me just talk about one more thing here i think it's it's more or less a context issue does you know this is a delightful experience sure does it make sense in the context of using money to invest in securities that are risky. I don't know. Should should there be yeah. more safeguards in place to to inform the user that what they're doing could potentially be risky? Maybe. I don't know. It's a, it's a larger question and it's something that we as human factors professionals and designers and um you know society just in general will have to think about as we move forward with some of these risky platforms, right? You wouldn't I don't know. There's there's a design element to gambling as well, but it's like, yeah, what's legal, what's not? I don't know, man. It's it's a it's a huge conversation that we don't have time for on this show. Yeah, I mean, especially when we're talking about software, like on your phone, that just like it it takes mm-hmm. the meaning out of so many things away from like the risk and all that stuff. So it, it's dangerous for a lot of people. And really the biggest thing that I would hope out of this whole thing for Robin hood and other FinTech companies is they, if they look at it as an opportunity to grow from here and like, like platforms like acorns, I think do a really good job of providing you more detailed ways to learn about finance and understand stock market, investment portfolios, all that stuff. And so there are good companies out there for sure. that don't like, always play off of your psychology or emotions, whatever it may be. But hopefully this is just a giant learning opportunity for all these kind of platforms. Hopefully it's a learning opportunity for everyone. All right. Uh, thank Huge thank you to our patrons for choosing this uh, news story this week. It's incredibly to- uh, timely and topical. Uh, and thank you to our friends over at TechCrunch for, our, uh, for the article that we um, – are referencing here if you want to follow along we do post the links to all the original articles in our slack as we find them so you can join us over there for more discussion if you want to be a part of choosing uh, what we have on the show consider being a patron Uh, and speaking of uh, patreon we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to see what's going on in the human factors community right after this human factors cast strives to bring you the best in human factors chatter every week we pack news interviews reviews and overall fun conversations into each and every product that we put our seal of approval on but we can't do it without you 
You see, the Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running this show come from the listeners. That's why we're giving back to our supporters on Patreon, now more than ever. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like 24-7 access to our exclusive Human Factors Cast Slack channel, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Cast Infinite, a Patreon-only podcast where the topic is human factors, etc. We're always updating our rewards, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you all, and remember, it depends. All right. Yes, Patreon. It's a thing that we have. It's a way for you to financially support the show. Uh, we always like to give back to those who financially support the show because we know um, that's, uh, that's, that's something that not everyone can do. Uh, and so what we're doing for the folks who do like to support us financially, if you don't, that's okay. Um, you know, we'll still produce the show for you every week. Uh, but for those people who do support us financially, we do have a couple things going on. Um, we have something almost every day of the week for our patrons. On Mondays, uh, we have Patrons Choose the News. It's a poll that runs throughout the week. On Thursdays, we choose. Uh, and they chose this story this week. So thank you to all of our patrons for choosing this new story this week. Um, we have rewards for people. If you sign on at the $10 level, we give you a free little tote bag. You get uh, additional things like a uh, professional heuristic review or of your portfolio or website or whatever it is. We work with you to understand your goals. Um, we're always updating that list. And of course, don't forget Human Factors Minute. Um, anyone who signs on at the $5 level gets Human Factors Minute. It's an entirely new, different podcast, separate from this one, where we talk about uh, human factors in one minute. And it's a different topic every week, hopefully to keep you engaged. Uh, and they get that on Tuesday. And then on Friday, uh, you know, they get front of the line to um, the, uh, the good old it came from section, which we're going to get into in just a minute. But they get to the front of the line. So uh, if, if you can do that, that's great. If not, there are other ways to support us. I'll mention that at the end. All right. Why don't we go ahead and get switch gears and get into this next part of the show. It came from. It came from. That's right. It came from Reddit this week. Uh, this is the part of the show where we search all over the Internet to bring you topics that the community is talking about. Like I said, our patrons get uh, front of the line access here. Nothing from them this week, but we always post it. So uh, coming up here, we got, I guess, what, three of them. Uh, I think we got time for all three. We can try to do all three. Let's do it. Um, Blake, I'm going to read. Uh, you know what? I'm going to read uh, this first here. I'm going to switch the order on you really quick. So I'm going to read okay. I'm gonna read this first one here. Um, it is uh, what to do. Sorry, this is uh, I, I don't have a username. This was deleted before um, we were able to uh, to get the username. But um, this is uh, from the user experience subreddit. What do you do when working with someone older or more senior who doesn't seem so senior? Uh, there was probably more details to that, but we'll just leave it at that, Blake. What do you do when you are working potentially under somebody who uh, may or may not have as much experience as you in a, t a certain topic or something like that? Um, it can be kind of a tricky situation. Blake, what do you do? I think there there's a lot of ways you can handle this. Uh, I don't know. So you you have a lot of options. I think the best ones are... To one, flex your own leadership skills. If you feel like somebody else is, you know, potentially like they just don't have the experience, maybe they're just not as into the job, so you don't feel like they're, you know, keeping things 
up the way that you would or going through like putting processes in place that kind of help the team function and grow, like use it as an opportunity to step up and be more senior than you are right now. Because chances are, if you're seeing gaps and issues, it's a good time for you to kind of start filling a role that maybe doesn't exist. And the second part there is use it as an opportunity to build somebody up. Like just because they're more senior or older or whatever, doesn't mean that they've had the same experience that you have that you could bring to the table. And who knows by doing that, by kind of bringing your prior experience to a new place and trying to help, you know, suggest things that a more senior person could implement or do to kind of help the team out or help you out. You may end up learning things from them that like you just didn't, you couldn't see at first. So I think, of course, context matters here, but I think it's a great opportunity, even though if it seems like, oh man, this this feels odd. This person's older than me. They have like a better title than I do. They get paid more. Well, great. Okay. Try and help them become a better leader. Or if that's not something they're interested in and that becomes clear through working with them, become your own lead, become that like support person for the rest of your team. But Nick, what would you do in this situation or how have you handled it prior? That's a great question. Um, I don't know if I've ever necessarily dealt with this, though. I, I, I can tell you how I would react. Um, and it, it it goes along with point two that you made there. Build somebody up. Uh, if if I know that somebody is like, let's say I, uh, I have some strong opinions um, that maybe the person above me doesn't quite share. Um, there's a whole debate about mentoring styles and what's kind of appropriate and when to use which one the approach i like to take is ask questions um trap them into uh <laughs> trap them in your questions well, no 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 not necessarily trap them but uh, the, you know um have get them to explain their rationale and then um maybe maybe subtly poke at it if you think there's a better way to do something right um I I tend to be fairly coy at first, but then slowly get more direct if they don't get it. Um, so, you know, I might start by saying, um, hey, can I just ask you, you know, like it's it's really important to me that I understand the context behind this thing. I just wanted to know um, why are we why are we doing it this way? Um, and if they you know, if they can't explain or they have a a, a bad answer. Uh, and it always kind of just depends on the person too, but um, you know, I feel like that's a good time to step in and say, "Oh well, what if have have we ever tried it this way?" You know, like don't don't ask them. Um, have you ever thought? Say, has it been tried this way? And that way, it absolves them of the guilt of not trying it that way, but then also gives them an explanation to uh, tell you whether or not that way has worked in the past or not, and why. Um, so just ask questions. I, I, that's, that's kind of my approach to it. Um, I, yeah, I, I'm a little, I, I'm beta when it comes to like assuming leadership roles, especially when somebody else has been assigned that role over me. And so I'd never like wedge myself into that position and try to sideline them. So that's just kind of my approach, but that's another approach too. <laughs> Yeah, I think it all depends on the situation because if you, f I don't know, there's nothing worse than finding yourself in a situation where you have somebody above you, but their leadership is not there yeah. and they don't want to do anything about it. So you have to step in or else you're just going to suffer from it. Um, and 
I don't know. I've seen teams suffer from leadership that doesn't want to really be in a lead position. So it's it's oh, tough. Oh, yeah. You just have to kind of make a call. Yeah, me too. I've seen that very same thing. All right. I'm going to read this next one here. Um, this one is, I have an interview this week, and this one's actually a really important topic too. Um, I have an interview this week with a creative design agency. It seems that the 40-person team doesn't have a single person of color. As someone who values diversity, how can I bring this up appropriately during our interview? Um, they have, let's see, they've made an edit since. Uh, the, the, there's, I think the edit's kind of important, to be honest. Yeah, um, they're, they're, they are in a city, um, which the the city is, it, the, the agency, the city of the agency is, wow, words are hard, uh, is super diverse and within the United States. Um they are also desperate for a job right now. Not sure if they'll get an offer, but just wanted to make a question like this. Um, let's see here. Uh, all right, yeah. So Blake, what, what do you what do you think? How do you, how would you approach that problem? You're you're interviewing for a company. Uh, there's everyone's white. What's going on? So everyone's white. Yeah, that doesn't help when I'm white. Two, does two it? white dudes on a podcast asking about diversity. Two white dudes. Right. Uh, no, not helping here. <laughs> but so I, I'm going to make this really simple. And yes, I am oversimplifying it and I own up to that. But so the part of the edit that I thought was really important or speaks to me the most is so let me reread this sentence. So desperate for a job right now. Not sure if I would even get an offer, but just wanted to make sure a question like this would be OK. Here's the important bit. I know I might be might potentially lose the job because of it, but it feels right to ask before rather than find out after. I would so I'm not a person of color. I cannot pretend to understand um, what this feels like because it's just not something I could put my I can't put myself in those shoes. But what I can say is if you feel like you can't directly ask that question, and if you do and you get a negative response, then it's not somewhere you want to work anyway. That, from my perspective, like I, I totally get that if you're in a tough situation and you, and you need a job, not asking. But I feel like if you're going to ask about it, you should be direct because I think companies need to understand that that is something that's, one, important to you, but also it's important to the – the because this is in the, in the U.S., but I imagine this is global – it's me making assumptions, but it's important to, I think, the culture as a whole to have diversity in any companies or organizations making technology or doing whatever, making shoes. I don't care. It's important to have like that diverse perspective to see things grow and to give people opportunities. So th this is not a great answer. And again, I feel like my perspective is a little bit out of whack. Uh, being a white dude but at the same time like i would ask the question point blank because hopefully what you hear is there are diversity initiatives but we're we can't we can't figure it out we're obviously not doing something right is that something you would be interested in helping if we brought you on that's the response you would hope to hear but if the response is like just awkwardness or does there's well, we never thought negativity about that. that comes in that yeah that kind of stuff one, if the if you get that response that Nick gave, like we never thought about that, that's a great place to kind of insert yourself and could get you that job. Just saying, but if you get like a negative response or uh, anything anything but something positive, then it's not somewhere you want to work anyway. 
that's my opinion anyway. Yeah, it's tough. Um, so the the important thing here, Blake, is that I I think it should be brought up during the interview, um, whether or not you are desperate for work, uh, for the same reasons that you brought up, but also during the interview process. It's not just the company interviewing you to see if you would be a good fit for that company. You should be interviewing that company to see if it's a good fit for you. And if this is an important question to you, you should absolutely ask it. Um, and, you know, I would even go further uh, than I'd be a little bit more extreme than Blake here in this case. If Even if you got the we haven't thought of that example, I don't think that place would be for you. I think. It takes a lot of momentum to change, uh, you know, corporate culture in in certain places. And so one person asking about diversity might not change that. It might set it in the right direction, but I don't think it's going to change that much, especially if you are a designer or a human factors person. Um, Unless, of course, you are in a position, you are applying for a position where you could potentially hire others. That is one place where you can have a difference. Um, you know, I think just generally keeping in mind that you are interviewing a place as much as they are interviewing you is is the best feedback that I can give. And um, honestly, I don't think anyone should feel afraid to ask this question to a potential employer. Um, you know, I, I think it's a uh, it shouldn't intimidate anybody. And I understand why it would. Um but but we need more transparent questions like this. Say, hey, you guys are all white. What what's going on? Uh, <laughs> so I mean, it's 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 a good point. It's and and you you bring up another great point that I think a lot of people don't remember. I'm certainly guilty of it. Like when you go to interview at a place, like it often feels like they're grilling you, but you should be probably grilling them twice as hard mm-hmm. because like that's somewhere you're gonna you know sacrifice time emotions to give great workout and you why would you do that if you think the culture is not a good fit and sometimes that's harder to determine up front but asking a question like this if it's important to you that will tell you a lot very quickly yeah all right we have uh you know what i think we've 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 hit our hour let's let's get out of here and we'll save this one for next week how about that Let's do it. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and get out of here for today. That's it for us. Let us know what you guys think of the news story this week. Uh, You can join the discussion on our Slack. We have a Slack where you can join us uh, or follow us all over our social channels at HFactors Podcast. If you want to get to us directly, you can do that show at humanfactorscast.com. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple ways you can do that. One, you can leave us a review on your podcast medium of choice. We always like getting those five-star reviews. Two, you can let a colleague know about us. Uh, word of mouth is really great for the show. And three, if you have money, want to support us on Patreon and get some things back for it, you can certainly do it that way too. And of course, you can always reach us at our home on the web, humanfactorscast.com. I want to thank Mr. Blake Arnstor for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about a YouTube pre-show? Yes. So one more thing you can do to support the show. Oh, if you... If yeah, go check out our YouTube if you don't mind. Throw a like on the videos, especially some of the live stream ones. That will help the channel out and help us kind of continue to grow. 
Uh, if you're looking for, to find me anywhere, you can always reach me in the Human Factors Cast Slack at Blake. Uh, but you can also find me across social media, including Instagram, LinkedIn, I think that's it, GitHub, <laughs> and Twitter at Don't Panic UX. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.